So I hope you have a Bible. We're in John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 to begin our time together, and we'll study um, this uh, kind of a little passage within a much larger story um, that centers around this uh, miracle at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, this is the third um, sign that John really anchors his gospel in and around. Um, these uh, seven signs of Jesus. Uh, John uh, has a lot of uh, a lot of themes that carry through his gospel. Uh, seven's a big, um, an important number to John. Um, he starts the gospel out talking about um, uh, how uh, kind of echoing Genesis and has a kind of a seven-day narrative of Jesus starts his, his, his journey, his ministry. Um, we talk, There's these I am statements that John um, uh, you know, has Jesus saying. Um, we have these seven signs as well. So that's a very significant, important uh, trend to follow through on, and we'll talk more about that as we continue studying John. But John 5, verse 1 through 9, the Scripture says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Now, we are coming off um, a similar story in theme, a similar story in message um, from the end of John 4. Uh, we talked last week about um, and, and anchored the message around this idea of living as if. Living as if. In the story of the Jewish official, in, in the story of this Sanhedrin uh, councilman, uh, we, uh, we find a man who'd heard about Jesus um, and broke sequence from his tradition and his customs to place his faith in Jesus. Um, of course, this nobleman, this councilman, had a son who was near to death. His wife and he made a decision it's worth traveling the several hours to see Jesus to see if he can come and heal our son. We've heard stories of Jesus turning water into wine. We've heard stories of Jesus... Um, raising someone from the dead. We've heard stories from Jesus doing these miraculous things, so maybe he can come and do a miracle for us as well. We've heard whispers and rumors of the Son of Man in our midst. What if he can do for us what he's done for some others? Now, we talked about the ramifications of this man placing his faith in Jesus, uh, how often we're tempted to hedge our bets. This man had a lot of um, background, his religious background um, really went against a lot of things he was going to, to, to believe in had he trusted in Jesus and if he would trust in Jesus. We talked about the ramifications and what was at stake. And, you know, often we're tempted to hedge our bets. We're often tempted to straddle the fence, to believe a little bit, but also rest a little bit in something else, to believe that God might do this, but also believe that we might can do this if God doesn't show up, if God doesn't work for us. We often straddle the line that we place our faith in what God can do, but we place some of our faith in what we can do or what someone else might can do for us. And we talked about the danger of straddling that fence. We talked about that 
in, in not putting all of our faith in what God can do and not putting our complete trust in what God can do, we might be missing something. Because if we leave something on the table, if there was more there than we were willing to trust in, we'll never know what we might have missed out on. But here's what we do know. The rumors and whispers of the Son of God made flesh, God's Word, God's favor, God's Lamb, a new platform, a new wine, holiness with human hands, the Son of Man come to save all of humanity. This Sanhedrin official came to Jesus denying his own faith because he had heard rumors and perhaps greater than the challenge of facing the loss of his son was the challenge that Jesus presented to him. Now, I'm not suggesting that losing his son would not have been difficult, but what Jesus asked him to do was very difficult. Jesus told this man, your son's going to be okay, but I'm not going to go with you, and I'm not going to give you any evidence. You've just got to believe what I've said. I want you to go home. I want you to leave. I want you to go travel the three or four hour journey back on, in your carriage or on your horse. I want you to go see your wife, and I want you to walk in the house, and when you walk in the house, your son's going to be okay. I'm not going to give you a little vision so you know that's going to be true. I'm not going to give you any assurance at all. I'm just going to say to you, he's going to be okay, and I want you to turn around and I want you to go home empty-handed. And the man was thinking, what in the world? I can't do that. My wife sent me to get you, and I've got, I've got power, Jesus. I've got guards, and I've got some clout. I can take you by force if I have to. I mean, you know, we can do this the good way, or we can do this the difficult way. I, you know, we'll let you figure that out, Jesus, but I'm not going home empty-handed. And he said, he said, sir, you're going home empty-handed, but you can go home with a full heart of confidence in what I can do. Jesus told this man that his son would be healed. He gave this man no proof, no evidence. He simply tasked the man to take him at his word. And this is where we saw ourselves and where we see ourselves so often. Tasked to take Jesus at his word based on the word about him, right? This man had no proof, no evidence. We read the scriptures and we are tasked and we are called to take God at his word based on the word of other people. Yes, other people have seen and experienced great things. We've heard about those things and we live in this tension where we are called and, 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 and given the, the opportunity to believe in what God can do. And thus we're called to go about our days, often with prayers unanswered and lives unchanged, but still confident that Jesus can be trusted, that He is who He claimed to be. On what basis? That Jesus can be trusted, that He is trustworthy. This royal official didn't know a better way, so He took Jesus at His word and at the same hour that He believed. At the same hour that Jesus said, your son will be well, the boy was made well. But the miracle of the story is not just the, son's be, the son being healed. The miracle of the story is that the man walked away believing. That's the whole point of this gospel, after all. He walked home by faith, not by sight. He believed the word and behaved as if the word would be proven true. And that is what Christianity is all about. It begins and it often stays as a walk of living as if, in spite of as is. That we are called to live as if, in spite of. And even though it doesn't change automatically, and even though it might not ever change, we are called to live as if, in spite of what is and as is. But we press on. 
whether as it becomes reality or not, because we know that a better day awaits and redemption draws nearer and nearer every day. But until then, we walk by faith and we believe when it's easier to not. Tonight's text, the next chapter in the episode of John's story, continues this theme uh, and calls toward, continually calls toward that we would live as if in spite of as is. And tonight, however we move uh, from a rich leader to a poor disabled man, uh, we, we've spent time with uh, several different people so far in the Gospel of John. We've seen the religious leaders. We've seen Nicodemus. We've spent time at a well with a, a Samaritan woman. Then we, again, talked about this nobleman. But now we move on to a man in a much poorer and dire situation. Uh, this poor, um, the Scripture says, a man that had an infirmity for 38 years. Now, it's not about someone believing that God might work in someone, uh, someone around them. But this is about believing that God can work in some personal right way within them. So this is not just a man believing Jesus can do something for his son. This is a man believing that Jesus can do something for himself. So it becomes a lot more personal. I think we will see ourselves in this story even more clearly tonight. Um, again, this is the third sign of seven that John uses to prop up and testify to who Jesus was and would always be. And verse number one tells us that this was a feast time for the Jews. Now, if you grew up in a traditional church setting, you're all too familiar with uh, church potlucks and fellowship dinners. Uh, we get it honestly. Um, the ancient Jews had festival after festival, and they spread out. So as uh, they, didn't, they weren't even spread out, right? Um, they didn't give you a chance to breathe. They were back to back to back. Um, so if, if you were used to that growing up, the ancient Jews kind of set that trend for us to take to follow suit in. Um, with any religious festival, there were traditions and legends built up around them, and they became bigger and bigger every year. And uh, the, the rumor about this festival um, was that, as verse 4 tells us, and really in the original manuscripts, this is more of a parenthetical. Um, some, uh, some texts have it kind of as a, as a footnote because it's more or less kind of John saying, this is what was believed happened at this festival. Um, John is not suggesting, and, and, and nowhere in Scripture do we have any precedent that this was something God, you know, said on this day of the year, every season, every festival, I'm going to do this at this pool. Um, this was more or less kind of this folklore or this legend that surrounded this pool. Uh, again, the Old Testament is full of so many miracles, it's, one, it's no wonder the Jews believe that God would perform miracles during certain festivals that, rep, that reminded them of uh, miracles of old, the Red Sea, the, the Jericho walls, the giant being slain, those things. Um, so verse 4 tells us that it was a pretty incredible legend about this particular feast and festival, but there was no proof or record or of any actual healings ever taking place at this festival. So I want to make that very clear. There was just rumors. There was just hope. There was no actual proof. And, and from what we kind of gather from this story... More and more people gathered at the pool every year, and nobody ever seemed to get healed. This hope was enough to bring in droves of people who had given up or been given up on. And it's an oxymoron that this religious festival was known for miracles, was dominated by so many that were afflicted. The numbers didn't go down annually, they went up. And these sort of rumors and whispers still spark hope within hearts and minds of, our, of, of hearers in our world today. People drive for hours. They fly across the country to go to this expert, to go to that hospital, to go to this conference. 
Some because of medical fines, and maybe that medical treatment can help you or help me. Some because of this religious fervor that surrounds certain movements. And the reality is that most in those situations, when you take a percentage of people that go to this expert or go to this conference, whether it's a doctor or some sort of uh, self-proclaimed healer, very few people walk away getting the results they were looking for in those circumstances. I'm not saying that people can't get healed or can't, get, can't receive uh, treatment at a, at, a, at a facility that is specialized in a certain kind of, of, of cancer or a certain kind of disease. I'm not saying that God does not heal people in miraculous ways. He absolutely does. He uses doctors. He uses uh, regular men and women. But the problem with this episode, the problem with so many in our world today, the hope is misplaced. Not because there wasn't an attempt or not because there isn't a God, but because hope was placed in the wrong place. And that place couldn't handle the expectations and couldn't produce the needed results. See, a lot of us, we put our hope in things that seem like they're sanctioned by God, that seem like they should be affiliated with God, that appear to be very much uh, you know, a part of God's kingdom. And otherwise, we put our faith in doctors and other people that we think should be able to produce the results that we need. But it's just got to be stated in our world today, there are a lot of places that when we put our hope in them, people, when we put our hope in them, they can't handle that kind of pressure. And they don't produce the results that we were looking for. And now some on the periphery and support may even be more hopeful or satisfied than the actual one in need. But the result in many cases, in most cases, is deferred hope. And the Bible has a pretty big truth bomb about this sort of setback. Proverbs 30, 13, 12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. That when we put our hope in something or someone that doesn't reciprocate, that doesn't prove to be worthy of that hope, and so many of us do this, don't we? We vote, right? We attend, we travel, we invest, and so often we put our hope in things that cannot handle it. And they don't give us anything in return. How often has that happened to you? Maybe you lost a friend because you thought that friend could do something for you that they didn't. And maybe they didn't ever advertise that they could, but you just believed that they would be that person for you. And you put your hope in them and they let you down. Maybe you thought that this expert or this person could do for you what you were looking for and you put your hope in them and it just did not work out. We can't, I can't begin to talk about how many religious leaders have, have not even because they misled people, but because people put... Hope in people that they should not have ever placed. And when hope is deferred, it makes the heart sick. When we are disappointed, sometimes there's no coming back or there isn't an easy road back. Let me ask you, where have you misplaced your hope before? Maybe in a person, a place, maybe in a thing. How hard was it for you to recover from that crushing blow? When it became reality for you that hope was misplaced. How difficult for you was that? And it's okay to, to, to say, you know what, I, had, I put my hope in this guy or this person or this place or this thing. And it just didn't work out. I, I put my hope in, 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 this, in this relationship. I put my hope in this product. I put my hope in this investment. I put my hope in this leader or this thing. And you did it. And, and, and how hard was it to come back from that? Sometimes we don't ever come back from it, if we're being honest. Bitterness sets in and disappointment sets in. We just kind of get to this place of not trusting anyone. And 
For years, the Jews had held on to this religious tradition and this pageantry. For years, they were disappointed again and again. And who knows, maybe the religious leaders knew this wasn't actually working. And maybe they turned into some sort of, you know, gamesmanship, some sort of means to make money. Who knows, they were prone to do things like that. They were no better than we are in our own greed and, 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 and religious antics. I find the description of those who assembled for this festival healing to be pretty powerful. Not just because of the physical condition of those in that day, but also relating to all of us spiritually. Look at verse 3. It says there were people, a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed or numb. Not to take this out of context too much, but just to relate this to all of us, because I think God wants to say something to us tonight about our own blindness and our own immobility, our own numbness. The blindness can speak to a loss of vision, the lame, a loss of ability, the numb, loss of feeling, and not just in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, right? In, in an in a emotional way, right? I mean, how many of us, we've lost, that something happens, right, and we lose our ability to see clearly. We lose our vision for what God might want to do through us, right? How many of us have been there, and how many of us are there? We lose our ability to do what we want to do or do what we wish we could do because we got involved in something that set us back, that disabled us in maybe a physical way, maybe an emotional way. And maybe because of what you've been through and the bumps in the road, you've just gotten numb and you just don't feel anything anymore. We fall in line into one of more of these categories from time to time. Religion can ruin us, life can break us, and sin can leave us numb. You know, we lose vision for different reasons. Sometimes we get caught up in the wrong stuff and we become very short-sighted, can't we? How many times, maybe growing up when you were younger, maybe it was more common. I don't think it's just exclusive to young people. But we put our, we set our sights on something or something, something that we want or someone that we think would make our life so much better. And a lot of times we get caught up in someone or something that proves itself to be not what we thought it was. And we invest so much of our sight, we invest so much of our attention in that person or that thing, right? And after it doesn't work out, after it doesn't lead to what we thought it was going to lead, to it just burns us out doesn't it and we have no desire to even imagine what's next we have no desire to even take a to have a vision for what god might want to do again we get beat up and it takes a while to resync with god and we took our eyes off of god we put our attention on the wrong thing Proverbs 4, verse 25 says, Let your eyes look directly forward, your gaze straight before you. You know why that commandment is in the Scripture so often? Because our tendency, our drift, is to take our eyes off of God. And the risk that we take when we take our eyes off of God is we put our vision in something that's going to, to, to distract us and ultimately it will blind us. Sometimes religion can narrow the scope of our vision. Remember, we talked about a few weeks ago the insider-itis, right? We get so focused on what's going on inside, we lose sight of what God wants to do outside. Sometimes we do things the same way for so long, we lose the ability to imagine any other way. I don't know how we might get to this place, but I would imagine in most churches today, I would imagine in a lot of our hearts today, there is some blindness, Maybe we can't even begin to think about what God might want, might want to do. Maybe we're so hung up on the past. We're so hung up on something that didn't work out. Maybe we're still looking at the wrong stuff. And when someone says, hey, what are you doing for the Lord? What are you striving to do? And we don't even have an idea because our vision is gone. 
And we're just waiting. Waiting on some means of seeing again. Life can be a drag. Sometimes it can drag us sideways, beat us up pretty bad. Maybe you've been pushed and maybe you've been bruised because of things done to you. Maybe you've done some things that you couldn't help. Things were done to you that you couldn't help. Maybe some things you could have avoided. Maybe you're like this group of people that were lame. They had lost their ability. They had lost some sort of function. And you know how this connects to our vision? Where our attention goes, our actions follow. So there's a connection between loss of vision and loss of ability. There's a connection between losing our vision and perspective and losing some sort of function, losing some sort of agency. How many times have you taken your eyes off? Have you been trying to multitask and take your eyes off something, right? You look over here while you're driving and all of a sudden you're going that direction, right? You take your hands, you take your eyes off of what you're focused on and you, your hand goes in a direction that maybe uh, could have damaged you or put you in danger, right? That happens to all of us and it should be such a practical example to us. Proverbs 4 goes on and says, Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So what is the connection there? Where we're looking, we'll end up going, right? That where we're focused on, we'll end up following through towards. Maybe your situation where you just don't, maybe you're in a situation where you don't have strength. You don't have the ability to do anything better for yourself. Sometimes we've made decisions. Sometimes decisions were made for us and our bed is made. Perhaps you got involved in something, you had a lifestyle or a path that you were following down, and it's just left you with, with the inability emotionally, maybe physically, to move forward. Proverbs 5 talks about falling into sin. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of sin. So sometimes sin can handicap us. Sin can immobilize us. Sin can hold us back in very physical ways, but more importantly, in mental and spiritual ways. And the result is that we can't move. And we're just waiting for some means of moving again. And then there's those of us, and we've all been here, that are numb. You've done so much wrong, or so much wrong has been done to you, and you just can't feel anything anymore. Maybe you made some decisions and you just kind of, you know, seared your conscience over and over again. Maybe some things were done to you and you just lost the ability to trust or believe or even imagine better. And maybe you've tried to numb the problem with a person, a place, or a product, and now you're entirely numb. Isn't this, a, a, you know, a, a picture of so many of us today that we try to numb the problems in our life with people, with a place, with a product, but the result is that we just are numb completely. Maybe you had a bad religious experience and you just can't feel anything in church anymore but pain. Maybe you had a bad personal season and you can't feel anything in relationships but pain. Maybe you lost trust, you lost confidence, and you can't feel anything but disappointment anymore. So many religious people are numb. The hymns put us to sleep. The sermon and, and, and the Word have lost its power in our ears. We quit seeking the Lord in sincerity and truth. We quit serving faithfully and passionately. We quit surrendering in humility and devotion. And we've allowed religion to take precedent over our relationship and we're numb and now we're just waiting for some means of feeling again have you ever been maybe you are blind 
Have you ever been disabled? Have you ever been immobilized? Have you ever been numb spiritually, literally, in any way? Now verse 5 narrows in on one man in the crowd that day, a disabled man, maybe paralyzed and lame in some way, shape, or form. He had the ability to stumble or to limp, but he clearly could not walk with full strength on his own. But we don't know exactly what was wrong with him. He'd been struck for nearly four decades, been attending events like this for maybe as long. He was in line because everyone who had been carried or had, been play, or had someone with them, um, as they were gated off to this, create some sort of spectacle of the moment for the observers. When the angel was alleged to stir the waters, the gates would be dropped and people would be carried to or limp towards or hobble towards the water, hoping for some sort of miracle. There was this long line of swords. Everyone had to stay in line. And of course, someone might beat you to the pool if you lost your spot in line. And we don't know how long the water was stirred and maybe there was a quota, how many people got healed. We don't know all that. And maybe none of that was even the case at all. But the backstory for this encounter that we are focusing in on tonight is verse number 6 where Jesus walks up to this man who had been there for so long knowing how long he had been there and Jesus asks him maybe a very insane question if you were here in the audience listening to him that day. He asks him, do you want to be healed? And I, thought the, I bet the man thought, are you kidding? I mean, you know, what kind of question is that? I'm in this line. I'm here with all of these other lame and paralyzed and, 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 and blind people. And we got people crawling, trying to get to the pool because they can't see. People limping because they're half you know, impaired. People who are begging others to carry them. Do you think I want to be healed? My goodness, why would I be here if I didn't want to be healed, Jesus? We find out something even more tragic about this man's story. He had no doubt been, had paid someone to bring him here, but he must have not had the money to pay somebody to stick around. I imagine that sort of service was not cheap, especially on this kind of day. And some people required more than just one person to help them. Remember in Mark chapter 2, it took four people to get one man in the house where Jesus was. And verse 7 tells us, the sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So this man's condition was so, so you know, pitiful that he must have paid someone to get him there, but he had no one that stayed with him. And he knew he might could crawl to the pool, but he knew he couldn't get there fast enough, and Lord knows he was probably going to get trampled. He'd been doing this a couple years. So this man's response to Jesus makes Jesus' question seem even more heartless and almost inappropriate, a little bit insensitive. Do you want to be healed? I mean, is that a serious question? I mean, are you sick? Are you cruel, Jesus? And Jesus says in verse 8, and again, we don't have the context. We don't know what the, you know, what the, the atmosphere was like. We just have this kind of wooden script that took place. Jesus says to him, rise up, take your, take up your bed and walk. I mean, we don't know. Maybe the man was just, you know, completely just going on and on and on and trying to talk sense into Jesus. We don't know. Maybe, I, I imagine there were dozens of other people pulling at Jesus, saying, hey, Jesus, can you pray for my son? Can you help me out? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you just make the water just swash over all of us, right? I mean, I bet people were just floundering around Jesus. Please listen to me. Please listen to me. And we get this response that Jesus gives to this man. Hey, buddy, I want you to rise. I want you to take up. And I want you to walk. So Jesus is saying to this man, step out of line and follow me. Because you're in the wrong line. I hate to tell you this, buddy. I mean, you've been doing this for 38 years. You're in the wrong line. Everybody here is in the wrong line. 
Jesus, you don't understand. I can't get out of line. The only chance I've got at getting better is to stay in this line. Who told you that? Well, everybody's told me that. That's what we do. We get in line and we wait our turn. And it never comes, but I've got to be here because there's no other way, Jesus. If luck has it, I can talk to somebody into helping me get there. I might make it on time to the pool. But Jesus, come on, Mr. Carpenter. If I get out of line, I'm never going to get there on time. Jesus, I can't get out of line, sir. I don't know where you're from, who you are. But that's a crazy idea. My heart always breaks at nursing homes. So many residents will ask a passerby to roll them to this room or that room in hopes that somebody might can get, they might can get the attention of a nurse or someone who might can help them. Sometimes the only help they really need is attention. And that's what makes Jesus' interaction with this man compassionate, not cruel. Because Jesus was giving this man attention that religion never would. They would laugh at people like this man that would stumble their way and trip their way and crawl their way to a pool that couldn't do anything for them. This man said, Jesus, I have been trained by the system. I've got to stay in line. And Jesus says, listen, the system is broken. You need to step out of line. You need to trust me. Who are you? Maybe they knew who Jesus was. Maybe they didn't. Maybe the whole crowd that day had heard about Jesus. And that's what makes this event so powerful. It's that Jesus did not wave a wand over the whole square and heal everyone. He could have, couldn't he? But he didn't. And that's what makes this passage not about, it, not about getting a miracle we want, but about believing in Jesus. Remember why John's writing this whole story? I keep reminding y'all. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life. John's saying, I'm not writing this so you can expect your own miracle by a pool one day. I'm writing this so you might believe. Jesus could have stood up in front of this whole crowd and said, listen y'all, close your eyes, repeat after me, everybody's going to be healed. And he could have healed them, but he didn't. He walked past, he stepped over, ignoring cries and pleas just to come to this one man and reach out his hand. Excuse me, pardon me, I'm sorry ma'am, I, I, I love you, but I can't help you today. I know you can't see and I know you can't feel and I know you can't move, but I've got to talk to this man right here because he needs to hold my hand. He needs to know that I'm here for him so that he might believe. Do you want to be made well? Get up, take my hand, and walk. This makes me think Jesus was known by these people. Jesus asked this one man, take me by faith instead of continuing by sight. I've got to ask you before we quit. What line are you in that isn't taking you anywhere? And how much longer are you going to wait in that line? You're blind, you're disabled, you're numb. The longer you wait, the worse your condition gets. And what is God wanting to do that's different than you believe is possible, different than what you may want, but may be what you need to be made well? 
And that is the new covenant. That is Christianity. That is the church, right? God stepping in and saying, you're in the wrong line. You're looking in the wrong place. You're fishing in the wrong water. You're on the wrong side of the boat. You're doing it the wrong way. You've been doing it every way that you have been taught to do it, but those ways are wrong. You've got to do it my way. Step out of this line and come with me. God can and God will give us a vision for our future, an ability to move beyond our past, feeling to believe and trust again. He's waiting on us to say, yes, I want to be made well. Yes, I want to see clear and do more and feel better. And this man chose to take Jesus as as at his word to live as if in spite of what was against what seemed to be his fate he placed his faith in Jesus and listen no matter what that leads to hope will not be deferred when you place your hope in Jesus when you take God at his word hope will not be deferred and this man hearing Jesus say rise take up your bed immediately he says okay I'll get out of this line because it's not doing anything for me When we place our faith in Jesus, we will never be disappointed. Romans 5, verse 1, 2, and 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And hope in Jesus does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Even in trials, there is hope. Hope is only found in Jesus, and that's the message of this story. Get out of any line that is not completely putting its hope in Jesus. See, he thought if he stepped out of line, he might not get there on time. But in reality, if he didn't step out of line, he was going to run out of time. You know how many people are in lines that religion has set up and they're waiting and they're waiting. They can't see, they can't feel, and they can't move. And Jesus walks by church after church after church and he says, do y'all want to get better? Because y'all better come with me if you do. Let me pray for you. Father, we want to give this invitation for somebody here tonight that maybe they just, they've been filing in line week after week after week. They don't step out. They haven't taken that leap of faith. They continue to go back to that well and put their hope in the wrong things. Lord, this invitation is for somebody tonight that might want to say, might want to confess that I have been putting my faith and trust in the wrong place. I'm numb. I can't feel anything. I can't move. I haven't done anything to make myself feel better in a long time. I can't see. I feel like I'm just so stuck and so paralyzed. And I feel like my spiritual life has just been so detached from God. And maybe as a church we want to say, God, we're tired of standing in line. We want to step out of line. We want to go with Jesus. Because where Jesus is, there's healing and there's hope and there's help. Father, I want you to stir the waters of this house today. 
Stir the hearts of your people today, Lord, and let us just begin one at a time to step out of line before we run out of time. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.